This episode of Make Something Cool is brought to you by Riverside, the leading podcast and video recording platform. We are massive fans of Riverside. We literally use it to make every episode of Make Something Cool. We can't live without it anymore. And we are not the only ones. Guy Raz of How I Built This uses it. Gary V uses it. Companies like Spotify and the New York Times use it. It's the best. So if you are trying to record a podcast or create video content, go check out Riverside today. You can hit the link in the description and the show notes of this episode to go check it out. We couldn't recommend it enough. So go check out Riverside. This is Make Something Cool. I'm Alex Sugg. Today, I am really excited to be sitting down with Luke Burgess. Luke is an incredible author, entrepreneur, professor, and a very, very smart thinker who I've really loved following the past couple of months. And today, we're going to be talking about his book, Wanting, The Power of Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life. Luke, thanks for being on. Hey, Alex. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, I... I'm really excited to talk to you. I had an experience. It's kind of a similar. I had a similar one with um, James Clear's book, Atomic Habits, a few years ago when that first came out. It was one of those books where it kind of naturally, I, I just kept hearing this book come up in conversation where it was like someone would mention James Clear, someone would mention Atomic Habits. And when I first read it, it just like clicked this idea of like habits are kind of the foundation of the human experience, everything we do. And I haven't had an experience like that for a few years, but suddenly, kind of out of nowhere, I started hearing everyone, it seemed like, on every podcast and book and magazine I was reading started mentioning this book, Wanting. And they kept talking about mimetic desire. And I was like, what the heck is this? I keep hearing this. I keep hearing this. And then you and I connected on Twitter and I finally just bought the book. I was like, I have to see what this is all about. And it's one of those moments similar to what I had with Atomic Habits, where it kind of is one of those ideas that once you see it, you can't unsee it. So that's why I'm really excited to talk to you. We're going to talk about mimetic desire. We're going to talk about where it comes from the book. But I think to start, I want to ask you when I was doing some research on you, what is, you, you put it on your in your bio, the art of, and pronunciation might be bad here, the art of Merigiando. Uh, uh, yeah. I, I saw that you, you wrote that in your bio. Can you, can you break down what, what that is? Merigiando, yeah, that is uh, a word that comes from the Italian word pomeriggio, and pomeriggio in Italian just means the afternoon, right? Mm. So the Italian poet uh, Eugenio Montale uh, wrote a, a great poem called Cuttlefish Bones. I think it was published in, in the fifties, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly. And in that book, he he made up a new word, right? Kind of like he's very Shakespearean. He just invented a word. That hmm. today is very popular in Italy, uh, and it's this word "merigiando," which basically means to while away the afternoon, to like waste the afternoon. So he he took the noun "the afternoon" and made it into a verb, right? So if we were thinking in English, you could say "to afternoon it," right? Like to, I'm gonna I'm gonna right. go afternoon it, and I love that, right? It became like a way of life for me because I lived in Italy for a few years and. It's the first time in my life after, you know, being a real hustler, like the quintessential Silicon Valley startup founder hustler. I moved to Italy for those few years and I learned what an hour and a half long or two hour long lunch is for the first time in my life. 
Right. Very different than like the two martini New York City like bougie lunch. That's not what's <laughs> right. not what I'm talking about at all. Right. Just like just chatting like five courses, you know, pop outside and smoke a, a cigarillo or something like that in between yeah. the second and third one. And that is sort of like embodies that that attitude of Medijando. So it's something that I've like it's been with me ever since I lived in Italy those few years and uh has been something that I try to like infect other people with that want to kind of ru- rush, uh, rush a nice lunch. Yeah. That really stuck out to me when I was doing some research on this because I just got back from Italy. It was my first time visiting and I was there for about eight days and I live in New York, live a pretty like fast paced, the normal kind of standard, what you'd expect lifestyle, you know, been in America, the vast, vast majority of my life. And so <laughs> Going there, I felt it big time. It was such a culture shift for me. And I felt, I still feel very affected and somewhat infected, quote unquote, kind of like what you said by that of like the slow nature of like just not having to do stuff. Like it was very interesting to me to be there and to feel like spending the time not doing and like being productive or whatever that we like are so fixated on here. It's so good for me. And I I came back feeling like I need to do way more relaxing and like eat my meals slowly, just enjoy things more. I felt like there was a very clear distinct like distinction between how much I enjoy things here because I'm just rushing through stuff all the time to get to the next thing versus there. It was like, no, the whole the whole idea is to chill and take it in and like really be present. So they know how to live, man. Um, What part of Italy were you in? North, South, Central? We were in Tuscany for the first, so we were primarily in Florence and man, that was, it was so incredible just to see all the history and yeah, just all the food and stuff. I mean, it's pretty touristy obviously, but still incredible history there to see. Uh, And then we went to Venice, which is like the most touristy place I've ever been. Uh, And I, I, we learned like, Locals don't even really live on the island anymore. They all live on the mainland away from because it's just been totally overrun with tours. Still so cool. So awesome. Such an awesome space. But those are the two the two places we were. Nice. Yeah, it's, it kind of depends on when you go. Um, the, mm-hmm. the only time that I've been to Venice, it was freezing. It was the opposite of, of tourist season. And I think there were a few more locals there than than usual. Yeah. You know, it's, it's crazy. I I mean, you know, I think we'll probably talk a little bit about creators today and I've never been more inspired. I've never had more creativity than when I stopped trying so hard, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, in particular in Italy. And it's hard not to be inspired by like all the history and and all the beauty there and, you know, just uh, unplugging and sort of like allowing yourself to not be productive for an afternoon to, to meditare, um, mm. just like leads to emergent things that, you know, you can't manufacture. And sometimes the harder you try, the further away you get. So it, it was incredibly good for me. And, uh, it's just something that I try to like, even though I don't live in Italy now, uh, my wife and I would love to like retire there someday. That's how much we mm. like it. We actually met at an Irish pub in Rome. So, I mean, Italy is no like, way. Yeah, yeah, we we met at an Irish bar in Rome while I was watching the Detroit Lions on Thanksgiving Day, um, <laughs> back in back in 2014. So I was there. Uh, I'm from Michigan, huge Lions fan, and it's a Thanksgiving tradition in my family. I was like lonely, so I went to one of the only places in the city that I could find in in Rome um, that was showing the game. And she sat down right next to me because her dad's also from Michigan, and I was like, "What are you watching the Lions game for?" Anyways, that's so cool. So, yeah, yeah. So I, I haven't been back since the pandemic started. I had to cancel a trip 
that was scheduled for April of 2020, which killed me. And I haven't been back yeah. yet, but I'm looking forward to getting re-inspired. Make it happen. Yeah, I yeah. felt the same way. Just like a kind of, I know it sounds so stupid and it's probably one of the dumber things I've realized lately, but I, we saw the David, which is, you know, I have to, you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty big art guy, but not like the biggest art fan in the world. Like I'm, I'm not like, you know, going to galleries all the time or anything, but I have to say like seeing the David in real life, that was one of the most like moving art experiences I've ever had. Like it is actually, it actually lived up to the hype. Like I was, we actually were on our way leaving the museum and I, I actually turned or I told Jane, my wife, I have to go back and see it again. Like I, I turned back and went to just see it again. Cause I'm like, I don't know if I'll ever see this again, but yeah. Dude, did you get yourself one of those kitschy like box pair of boxers that uh, <laughs> no. tell me you didn't do that? Tell no, me. I didn't. I did not. No, no. Or like a postcard with just yeah. his, uh, his butt cheeks. Just his yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. No, no, I didn't get any of good, that. Good. But, but I, but the silly part, that wasn't the silly part. The silly part to me was realizing, whoa, this dude also painted the Sistine Chapel. Like he did both, like he sculpted this masterpiece and he painted this like, like, and, and it was the same with Da Vinci. Like we went to see a bunch of his inventions and this was in Venice, but like these guys back, back in the day, it was just so clear. It was very inspiring to me to think like, wow, we have all these kind of made up rules about like really staying in your lane, sticking to one thing or whatever. And these guys were just doing whatever the hell they wanted. And they were both really, really amazing at it. And I know not everyone's a Da Vinci or a... Michelangelo, obviously, but it was kind of inspiring to be like, these guys were just doing what they wanted. And they got really good at multiple things. So I don't know. I kind of left feeling like a little bit more free to explore, especially the creative stuff. It was, it was interesting to think of how, how they were doing just what they felt. And they both got really good at different stuff. hundred percent. I mean, and they seem like two totally different skill sets to me. I mean, I don't know yeah. how to sculpt or paint very well. Um, exactly. from, what I, from what I understand though, Michelangelo like didn't think of himself, like, he thought of himself as a better sculptor mm. and not a painter, yet painted the Sistine Chapel, right? And right. I, I don't even think he initially wanted to do that. You know, it's something he sort of got pulled into. And that's wild. Like you would look at the Sistine Chapel and think, well, this is this guy's core competency. <laughs> that's what when I, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and then you see the David yeah. and it, and that's, that's when I realized like, I actually got in, like, I was telling Jay, I was like, Da Vinci did the Sistine Chapel. Well, she's like, no, Michelangelo painted the Sistine Chapel. I was like, no, he did the David. She's like, he did both. That's both. what's so amazing. Yeah. So yeah, it was, it was really, really cool. But but uh, yeah, and they, I'm also a huge sports guy. I didn't realize they lived in the same time in Florence together mm. and they like hated each other. So Da Vinci and Michelangelo, yeah. they had a little rivalry going, which was uh, also fun. I think that stuff's really fun. So yeah, there's that Walter Isaacson's got a fantastic book on Da Vinci that I just, I, I read it during the pandemic. And uh, if, if you want some good like mimetic rivalry stuff and just to read about an interesting character, I highly recommend it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a great segue into mimetic rivalry. We'll, we'll talk about that specifically, but I think to, yeah, let's get into the book a little bit. I mean, I think just laying the foundation for people listening, because I hadn't heard this phrase before reading your book. So it is a little bit new to me still. And I even, there are parts of it that I feel like I'm still wrapping my head around, but maybe just to lay the base, what is mimetic desire? What is, what is that? Hmm. Mimetic desire means that a person's desire for an object is not determined by that object itself uh, independently, but fundamentally 
determined by a third party or a third person that mediates the desire for that object. So we normally think of the desire between a person and the object of their desire as, as a straight line mm. uh, from them to the object, right? Like we want the shoes, um, we want the artwork, or we want the person uh, due to the qualities that are in the, are in the thing itself. And don't admit necessarily that our desires are heavily influenced, maybe even primarily influenced for the vast majority of things that we want by third parties, third, mm-hmm. like a, a third person, often mm-hmm. hidden, often somebody or something that we're, or a group that we're not aware of that mediates our desire for that object. And that's called a, a, a mediator or model of desire in Girard's language. And we'll talk about Girard later. But this idea that desire is not as independent and autonomous as we think it is. Mm. And I think most of us have this idea of our desires as being entirely our own. You know, this is probably a, a product of the enlightenment or just some kind of highly individualistic idea we have, right? About, you know, what it means to be, I, I probably Americans have this idea more than, more than some other cultures, right? It's just, it, it's, it's, I'm the soul. I sort of like create my own reality, even my own desires. Like I'm right. the manufacturer of my own desires. But if you just stop for a second and think about that, I mean, it's obviously not true. I mean, going mm-hmm. back to when I was born and sort of the things that I wanted being mediated to me by my parents, um, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't choose them. And having deeply embedded desires before I even knew that that's what was happening. And, you know, as we go through life, we, adopt usually unconsciously other models of desire that help color or flavor why we want some of the things that we want. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't claim that all of our desires are purely mimetic and that we're, you know, these sort of mimetic puppets that run around wanting things because other people tell us to. I think that we can be. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's sort of the danger. It's part of why I wrote my book. Because the more we are aware of it, I think the more we can have self-possession, the more we can intentionally choose who our models are and things like that. But mimetic desire is, is fundamentally a desire that is mediated by others. And the word mimetic itself just means to imitate. Mm. It comes from the Greek word mimistai, which means to imitate. So it's okay. imitative desire. Mm. But the reason it's not referred to in mimetic theory as imitative desire, the reason we say mimetic desire is to imply something that is uh, a bit more hidden hmm. and subconscious and typically leads to conflict if we're not aware of it. Whereas hmm. imitation has a bit more of a neutral connotation, at least, gotcha. than, than, than mimetic. So mimetic desire is this kind of desire that uh, we're guided by through the various models and, and mediators that all of us have in our life to varying degrees. And, uh, and identifying sort of how that force works, uh, was really, I mean, a life changing moment for me, uh, and the time between my sort of understanding how mimetic desire worked in my life and the time that I wrote the book was about 10 years. Uh, and I sort of had to write the book, I think, to understand it as well as I wanted to. Yeah. I hear that that's always the, I mentioned him earlier, but James, James Clear writing Atomic Habits, he said, you know, you write the book you need basically. And, and, uh, and it sounds like you, you went through that too, but yeah. How did you, like, what was that experience like of, I mean, maybe first hearing the term and then that 10, 10 ish year period of like 
maybe fully understanding or grasping it, like what what was the turning point? What happened? Yeah, James Clear is good company, man. I, I think, um, you know, it's funny. Like I probably spent 10 years trying to explain what mimetic desire was to my friends after I'd had a couple glasses of wine and failed miserably for like 10 years. And finally <laughs> gotcha. I was like, I need to, I need to write the book. Need to write the book. Um, yeah. Uh, it's, I need to spend two years and uh, about 80,000 words. Right. I, I first heard the, the term, um, back in 2000, um, I mean, it's been more than 10 years, um, back in 2009 or 2010, hmm. around the time when I had sort of taken a mini sabbatical from one of my companies and sort of delved into reading, uh, and had a friend who was, um, a Girardian at the time and, and recommended that I look into some of these things. And then I kept, I mean, I kept hearing the, the name from different people and in different places. I went on a retreat, um, and uh, the name sort of Rene Girard, Rene Girard, okay. yeah, Rene Girard, who is the um, you know who 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 this all comes from. Right. Um, his, he's he's the originator of this theory, and it, you know it took me hearing the name five, six, seven times before I actually, you know, realized that this is something that I should look into, especially once I heard people that knew me well say, you know, you, this would really resonate with you. I think this would explain a lot of the things that you've been grappling with for a long time. And that led me down a, a real journey of just understanding myself differently. First of all, as an entrepreneur, I think that I even started a company or two for highly mimetic reasons. You know, I, I have this belief that oftentimes entrepreneurs talk about, you know, starting companies to solve problems in the world. Mm. But a lot of times we start companies to solve problems in ourselves. Right. And uh, a company can be a very uh, expensive way to, to do that. You're probably better off going to therapy or something. <laughs> right. so, yeah. You know, that that was the case for, for one of my companies, for sure. You know, as I was miserable, stuck in an investment banking uh, analyst job and 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 left and, you know, gr grappled with my own mimetic desire for a while. I mean, the first thing that I did was see it in everybody else except myself. And then I saw it in myself. Hmm. Jeez, I guess it was about five years ago that I, I had went to a conference that they have every year with scholars of mimetic theory. There's there's one um, usually there's they alternate between the U.S. and Europe. So hmm. I went to one in Denver. I went to another one in Innsbruck, Austria, and sort of tried to see, you know, what are people talking about in the space of, of mimetic theory? Hmm. And I realized that it was, I mean, there's brilliant people that go to these conferences and they all present white papers. It's, it's a very sort of academic conference. And there wasn't a lot of application to everyday life hmm. or to things that I could relate to. And I realized that there's a real need to sort of bring some of these ideas or even just the, the concept of mimetic desire, I think would be extremely valuable for creators to understand anybody in business, especially entrepreneurs. Mm. And I sort of, you know, asked around and I, I realized that no, I was the only sort of person like me that attended this, this conference. Everybody else was an academic. And I came to the, the frightening realization that if there was going to sort of be someone that that might attempt to you know write something to bring this to a larger audience that it might have to be me mm. and i sort of denied that reality for a long time and then i finally decided you know let, let me just go for it you know it's like a lot of creative projects that's just sort of like you know burn burn a hole in you and and, and just you know you you can't you can't not do the thing, right? Until you give birth to it, right? It'll just right. drive you crazy. And the book eventually got to that point for me. Mm. Uh, and that set me down a, a long, 
journey of, of, you know, publishing something with a traditional publisher, which is not something I, I thought I'd ever do, which is a whole nother story in itself. But I, I learned a lot, not unlike starting a company in some ways. And, and I think I learned more about mimetic desire, including my own in the process of writing that book than I did in the nine years, uh, 10, 10 years prior to that. Yeah. I want to go back to the, you said you built your first company for sure based on mimetic desire. Can you talk about why, like what, what, what happened? Tell that story. I, my, so my first company was a, in a, in a way it sounds very anti-mimetic. Okay. Because my first company was, was not one of the traditional kinds of companies that people were starting. It wasn't a tech company. It was a healthy vending machine company. Okay. What, what we, we literally took the healthy alternative to junk food, pita chips, granola bars, things like that. And we put them into vending machines. We branded them in a really cool way. We put an LCD screen on them and we put these in schools and hospitals and airports and office buildings. Mm. Uh, meanwhile, everybody else was, was sort of starting tech companies. My, the, the, the genesis of that idea came from, uh, my, my cousin and I, I went to NYU, my cousin went to Columbia and we just had, you know, we were like workout fanatics and there were so many times when we just wanted, uh, you know, a healthy snack on the go and we couldn't find something. And, you know, we, we realized that how nice would it be to make healthy food more convenient. And then I, we sort of realized that you know, like, we're not going to, we don't want to start a vending machine company that doesn't mm. seem very cool, you know? Yeah. So, um, which is mimetic sort of attitude in itself. Right. And it, it seemed like too, too, too big of a risk to take, I guess, at that time. So I, mm. I just sort of like followed the money, went to work on, on Wall Street. I worked in investment banking for a little while and private equity. And, you know, if I'm honest, I think that I, I was seeing some really cool friends sort of start companies in California. I mean, this is back in two, early 2005, right? So like, being a startup founder was not sort of like what it is today. Um, right. things were just a little bit different back then. It wasn't like, um, seems like everybody's like, you know, basically a, a, an entrepreneur these days, but back then wasn't quite like that. But I, I sort of saw that and, and wanted, I wanted the freedom that I saw sort of associated with the kind of lifestyle that they were modeling to me. Hmm. You know, here I am trapped at my desk, 80, 90, 100 hours a week. I'm basically a glorified secretary and they were sort of modeling this sort of lifestyle of, of independence and creativity and autonomy. Yeah. In fact, it's not really like that, you know, <laughs> uh, but that's, that's sort of what I saw. So I, I quit, um, moved to California, started the company with, with my cousin. And, you know, part of it was part of the mimesis there was like, well, everybody else is starting this kind of a company. So I need to start a different kind of company. That's, um, that's mimetic in and of itself because you're, you're sort of already basing the very kind of company you want to start based on what you see other people doing mm -hmm. and then deciding that you're, you're going to do like either the opposite of them or something a little bit different, but you're still taking them as sort of a model of, of, of desire, right? Right. And you sort of, that's the name that I give that is mirrored imitation. It's imitation, even though you're not imitating exactly, you're still sort of using them as, as a mirror to determine your own choices. Right. And that's very much what I, what I did without ever asking myself basic questions like, will I be happy running right. um, a vending yeah. machine company? Um, is this something right. that I want to do for the next five or 10 years? Mm. Do I even like the shit like that I'm putting in these machines? Yeah. Would I use it? The answer is ended up being no to all of those questions. And that's why yeah. ultimately I decided to, to, to leave. And 
And then within where it became really mimetic is like once we actually got started, you know, there were crazy and, and, you know, my self-awareness at that time in my life being horrible, there were crazy sort of mimetic rivalries. I mean, between us as, as business partners, between like the little sort of circle that we ran in, you know, insecurities like about, you know, we're not growing very fast. Maybe we should have started a tech company after all. Mm -hmm. Seems like investors you know, are not attracted by the prospect of scaling vending machine uh, <laughs> distribution networks, you know, and all of those things just sort of ended up consuming me to the point where I sort of like forgot why I'd started the company in the first place. Hmm. And I think that oftentimes we, you know, we have this hindsight bias where we tell stories about the reasons that we did things way after we did them. Right. And I had this sort of very romantic story about why I started that company, as most entrepreneurs do. But when I was radically honest with myself, I realized that none of the reasons for me starting that company had to do with any real understanding of the value that that I thought this would bring to people. And mm. had a lot more to do with, I think, me seeking a certain kind of identity as an entrepreneur, right. like the business itself almost came secondary to the identity seeking. Mm. And, you know, that is something, I mean, frankly, I see that a lot, um, where it's like, I have, you know, uh, sometimes I have students that are like, I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to be an entrepreneur. And I'm like, well, you know, normally that means like <laughs> being an entrepreneur, like I, I'm not, I'm not quite even sure what that, what that means. Like you normally, right. you know, come to that as, as a consequence of like, seeing some some problem that you want to solve not acquiring some quality of being right and i think that's sort of the you know it's the opposite way to do it and I, and that's the same way that i did it and that's why i sort of recognize it in in others when when they you know especially the the young the younger people that i teach and mentor yeah you know sometimes yeah i think it makes me feel naked <laughs> like i think what you're describing is very much my experience when i when you talk about the radical honesty with, with yourself, I think so many of my, um, yeah. And it's funny too. It's, it can be deceptive because I, I, I like to think of myself as like a critical thinker. I like to think of myself as somebody who doesn't follow the crowd, who does things differently and all that stuff, but that's its own form of this behavior to be like that, you know? And it's so funny that I really identify with a lot of what you're talking about of like, you know, for me, I've had so many ideas, whether it's, you know, this podcast or companies in the past or jobs or things like that, that you kind of don't find out until way, way later that I, or at least for me, I kind of like almost forgot myself in the process of doing stuff where I'm like, I'm kind of forgetting Alex altogether. And it's more like wrapped up into this idea of like some identity that I'm chasing outside of myself that I'm probably seeing other people doing that I think looks cool or looks fulfilling or whatever. And it's pretty interesting to, to look back and see like, if I'm really honest with myself, probably a ton of my really big life choices came from this idea of <laughs> mirroring behavior. Or even if it's going the opposite direction of people, it's still like the foundation is still based on like, what are other people doing? I'm going to do the opposite of that. It's still the same, the same coin, you know? And I really resonate with that. And, 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 so, so that was your first company. You realize all those things. You realize this isn't fulfilling. This isn't actually what I want at all. When, when did that click for you that like, I guess, I guess, was it after that company that you started reading more from Gerard and that you started seeing 
the the pattern that you had kind of fallen into? Like how what it what was the transition like from there? Yeah, that was the beginning for me, but I didn't it didn't click for me right away. Mm-hmm. I mean, I still, you know, I, I I think it just takes a long time to settle in because it's not like learning this thing that instantly clicks. It's not like learning math. Mm. It's learning something. It's self discovery, right? It's it's sort of like learning something about who we are, which that's the temptation is to sort of like I don't know read read a book, whether it's mine or whether it's Gerard himself, and then assume that we understand. Mm. The uh, the understanding is knowledge is not enough, right? There's sort of um, it has to become real, and it wasn't real for me right away. You know, it took me a long time. Uh, Peter Thiel, you know, by the way, describes the process of his, he's probably the most famous student of René Girard and mimetic theory, describes his journey in very much uh, the same way. Hmm. You know, like he intellectually understood it, but he didn't understand it at an existential level for, for years. And it was the same thing for me. Yeah, And that's, you know, it's, it's funny. I had conversations with my publisher and, and editor. And I was like, you know, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't know if I really necessarily expect people to read this book. And, and I, I hope that they can't unsee mimetic desire. And I hope that they get haunted by it, um, in a good way, but I, I don't necessarily know if it's going to be understood right away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's like something that, that t- you have to sort of like see in your own life. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's not, so I, I did, wasn't like cured of my unhealthy mimetic desire. It took me years, I think. And I'm still, you know, by the way, it's like, it's, it's not a bad thing. Like mimetic desire can be a positive thing. I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. It's just a part of human nature, right? And it's right. just a part of human nature that I think we don't necessarily like to acknowledge because it means that we're somewhat, um, you know, dependent creatures and, that, you know, we're, we're, we are social and that maybe we're not as independent as, as we think. Yeah. So, you know, I, I've done a lot of things since then. Some, um, I think it's been a gradual progression towards having more self-possession, if that makes sense. Or sort mm-hmm. of now I understand the, the, the things that are influencing me and, and the motivations behind why I do some of the things that I do. And I, I think that's, that's a fundamental question, right? It's like, being honest with ourselves about what our real motivations are hmm. uh, and th- asking about motivations is, is I think we just take our motivations for granted a lot of times. Right. And we don't actually like probe them and, and ask ourselves, you know, are they healthy motivations or are they the kinds of motivational drives that will only last for a couple of weeks or a month or a year? Because hmm. if you're starting a company or you're, trying to create something that's enduring, you want to make sure that your motivation is, isn't, is also enduring. Hmm. Like the motivation has to match your time frame, right? in a sense. So if the motivation is, for instance, to, you know, to satiate a desire to sort of like match a rival or to, you know, to, to deal with your own insecurity, you always have to find like new ways to do that. And I think that that doesn't really compare to like the, the motivation to, you know, to, to build something enduring that it is, does, isn't reliant on validation mm-hmm. from any other one particular like person is not reliant on sort of like being understood mm-hmm. right away. You know, and you see some people that have this sort of longer term vision and they seem sort of very secure in what they're doing. That's, that's a game changer, I think, to sort of get to a place as 
as a, a creator where we, where we can do that, right? Yeah. Whether you're a writer or an artist or an entrepreneur. And that's, that's sort of been the journey for me. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, bringing it back to creators that and speaking personally, like I've, I've started and quit so many projects and so many ideas. And I think basically because they weren't things I necessarily wanted, but they were things that I like, quote unquote, thought I should do, or they might work or things like that, that are like these desires that I, I, I don't think are, they don't have, um, staying power. Like you're not, you're not going to stay in something very long if it's not naturally like what you would do for fun or what feels natural to like your, your soul or like what fills your, your cup. And I, and I kind of see this in a lot of creators who I talk to and interact with. It's like, I kind of see a lot of people, myself included, like almost standing around and looking for, for models to follow versus, and you're, you know, you're looking at, you know, for me, you know, it could be different podcasters or different writers or different newsletter, like, or even like on Twitter, you're looking at people tweeting and you're like, look what they're doing. I should do like these corny, like self-help threads are like the thing now that people get really, <laughs> and you start wondering like, maybe I should do corny self-help threads now to get, but it's like, that's not me, you know, <laughs> that's not really who I am. Uh, but you, you play with it in your mind as like an idea to get bigger, to get well-known because you see other people getting bigger and getting more well-known and things like that. And I see a lot of creators, instead of looking internally, maybe at like what, what has staying power with me as an individual, what do I actually like that I could show up for a thousand times and be, have a good time doing and make it really good. You're kind of looking around for other people to be examples for you. Is that something, does that feel accurate to like mimetic desire? Does that feel like something you, you, you notice? Yes. And, you know, and I think people are sort of standing around looking for the right models often. And even if we embark on a project, we often like look to have it validated right away. Right. You know, and mm. if, if nobody else validates it, then we begin to doubt that we made the right decision. And sadly, the, th the same is even true with relationships. I mm. mean, you know, like in high school, like you have somebody, you know, that, you know, I don't know, ask somebody to, to prom or something like that. And like the first thing that they want to do is like get validation or they're, they're dating. And, and it's like, oh, like if none of my, you know, friends like sort of like bless this thing, then maybe I asked the wrong person. I don't know. Like we, we sort of, we, we were scared to have desires that nobody else has. Mm. Um, it's, it seems like. And that's, that's an interesting thing to just sort of be aware of as to like what extent do I need to have this thing validated by, by other people? And, you know, one way I think that an interesting framework to help sort of check ourselves a little bit. Um, have you ever heard of that sort of Japanese framework or Venn diagram called the Ikigai? I have. Yeah. 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 I, I don't know it intimately, yeah. but I've, I've like skimmed the idea before. Yeah. So there's an interesting Venn diagram and it's sort of like, you sort of want to look at the intersection of what the world needs, you know, like what is an actual problem? What can you be paid for? Cause that is important. That is a factor, right? Mm. Um, what are you good at? Mm. Like, what are you actually good at? And then what do you love? Right. Mm -hmm. And these, and like when these four sort of things like come, come together, uh, you have something, right. You have right. something that, that has like all of the different ingredients baked in to probably be something that will last and can be in, enduring. If one of those is missing, things get a little bit tricky. Right. And I think that that sort of layered way of looking at 
the things that we're doing can save us a lot of problems. Or if we're only looking at things from things from one layer, right? <laughs> right. Um, it's just what I doing what I love. Well, maybe I could never get paid for it, right? right. It could, might be a problem, mm-hmm. right? I think that's one of the one of the many sort of solutions to just checking ourselves in terms of some of the things that we're doing. Because I mean, one of the reasons that I wrote the book is that I'm trying to save people from, you know, these cycles of passion followed by disillusionment. Mm. You know, and I, I describe in the in the intro to the book the sort of my the the shallowness of my passion for one of my companies was just put on display for me when a, a, a deal that I had to sell the company sort of fell through. And rather than be disappointed, I was relieved. And I was like, well, that's like, doesn't seem like the way that I should feel. Right. Uh, why do I feel that way? And that's really the, the thing that set me down the road to discovering Girard. And, you know, I had people say, well, that, that relief maybe is, is actually some sense of freedom that you feel for not chasing the, the, the next sort of mimetic model that you find, mm. you know, maybe you need to take some, some time away and that feeling of relief from having a deal fall through, I, I realized was freedom that I could now sort of reset and reevaluate and purge some of the sort of unhealthy mimetic models that I had in my life, right? I was surrounded by highly sort of, um, not that there's anything wrong with this, but like, highly ambitious, uh, hungry entrepreneurs that seem to be starting companies every single year and were sharing their cap tables with everybody and fundraising. And there was like information overload. And I realized that I needed to unplug from that for a while Hmm. because I wasn't, um, I didn't have enough self-possession to be in that environment at that time in my life without feeling like a compass Hmm. that was having its needle like, uh, basically just like going like this at all times. Right. If you know the way that a compass works, you know, it should, should point North, but it only points North if you're holding it flat for one thing. Right. And for me, that represents like some stability, right. You need to hold it flat in your hands. And it also like, can't have any, any things that would give it a false North next to it. Right. So if, if I had a compass and it was right here in my hand, next to my microphone and my laptop, I wouldn't, I would get a false North, Hmm. right? Because of the magnetic, um, there are things in my computer that would cause the needle to to give a false North. Right. And that's how I think desire works too. Hmm. Right. I think like we, we sometimes need to unplug from the environments where we can get false Norths. Wow. And, and they're everywhere. I mean, that's, and they're everywhere. Right. Yeah. And at least see what a true North reading looks like. Mm-hmm. And then identify the things that, and then you can go back into those environments, but at least now you don't believe the compass every time you look at it. Like now, at least, you know that there are all kinds of things that can give it false readings and that you might need to reset in order to get the true reading. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I start every semester and in the class that I teach, I, I, we talk about this. And it's crazy. I mean, it's 2022, but I, I have, you know, a compass that I bring with me into the classroom. Mm. And I'm always like, does anybody know how, know how one of these things works? And I usually get one or two students that were like Eagle Scouts or something like that. I'm mm-hmm. like, I'm not calling on you guys, right? Does anybody right. else know how one of these things works? And I, you know, I pass it around and I say, well, which direction is north? And, you know, nobody knows how the thing works, right? And then we, we sort of explain it. And I, I, for me, it's a really good analogy for mimetic desire. Yeah, I, I fully agree. And I, you know, I'm bringing this back. I'm, I keep bringing it back to like the creators who are probably listening. I mean, that 
the true north as a creator, you know, even even harkening back to when we're talking about Michelangelo and Da Vinci, like they just had a lot of time to be bored away from people. And I think in a lot of ways that fostered just infinite space of mind to just like, what is my true north today? Like, what do I genuinely want to do and, and spend my time on where we live in this very challenging moment uh, with social media, obviously, but these environments, especially as a modern creator that you kind of most like there might be exceptions. I'm sure there are, but 99% of creators now, if you want to make a living or even just share your work, period, you're, you are spending a lot of time in these environments, social media platforms, whatever it is, just online. And it, True North feels kind of, uh, it's a very treacherous thing to try and find while scrolling Twitter or while on YouTube. You know, like you're, you're just getting socialized by all these different ideas all the time from all these different sources. And so unplugging to find that, it feels almost like you, you, you have to. Like it feels like a mandatory part of finding what you should or shouldn't be, shouldn't be working on. But that's a really hard step to take right now. It feels especially difficult with social media. I mean, and I'm sure, I feel like this book is extra timely because I feel like, you know, this mimetic desire, it feels very much to me like a human nature problem. Like it's probably been around since forever. But I think social media almost like takes it to this exponential level of where you're just, I don't know. How does social media and mimetic desire work together? I guess that's a good way for me to frame that. And it feels just like it's almost complete, entirely built on the idea that you're just looking at, at all these different people's lives and it's and you're kind of reflecting it back on yours. And it's like a filtering system for how you see yourself. Is that is that how it works, you think? Yeah. And it's not just that we're looking at their lives. We're looking at usually a highly curated right. life. Right. You know, and projecting all kinds of things and making assumptions about that person's life that are definitely not true in some way, right? Not, not fully true, at least. One way to understand the power of social media through a Girardian lens is understanding that all of the people on social media are models of desire in some way. Some of them are more important to us than others, but they all are models of desire. And this goes deeper than just the sort of dopamine hit or like sort of the neurological explanation for why social media um, could be unhealthy, you know, and there's been a lot of ink spilled on that. A lot of people have talked about it. Um, what's that? That documentary came out during the pandemic. I forget the name of it. Um, uh, social Dilemma. Yeah. With, with yeah, Tristan. Yeah. The, the, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah the, the Social Dilemma. Um, I don't think that tells the full story. Mm. Yeah, I think there's a deeper layer to all this. And I think that's mimetic desire. And the realization I had about what social media has done to the world is, is, is this. So there's a basic distinction in mimetic theory about the two different kinds of models that people have. There's just really two different kinds of models. One is an external model of desire. These are people that are outside of our world that we, we don't have a possibility to really come into contact with or have any conflict with. Right. So, you know, for me, I don't know, like Kanye is like an external model of desire, right? Mm. Like he's, he's not going to interact with me. Right. He's, he's just totally outside of my world. Like it's almost like he's otherworldly. It's like a world that I can't really relate to. Mm. But it used to be that like most people were external models of desire. Like they, they weren't accessible to me at all times. Um, their universe of desire was sort of confined to 
a certain sort of time and space and, you know, the friends that they had and the world that they were in. The other kind of model is an internal mediator or model of desire. And those are the people that are inside of my world. They're the people that I feel more similar to. Like I, I, I feel like we have something in common. And those are the people that always make actually more powerful models to us than the external models mm-hmm. of desire because we can relate to them. They're a little bit more like us. So that creates a bit of a dangerous situation because what social media has done is made almost everybody with the exception of, of, you know, like a Kanye or something, somebody like that, an internal mediator of desire. Mm -hmm. Like it's like taking the entire, all of the desires in the world and putting them on the head of a pin, Mm -hmm. which we're also on. Like they're all right here. They're all in my phone. And everybody seems a lot, everybody seems very similar to everybody else. Right. I find sort of, you know, social media has, has become like a, an eliminator of, of difference in a certain sense where like everybody's sort of like competing with everybody else mm-hmm. as in, as an internal model of, of, of desire. So Twitter is a great example for this, right? Like, Anybody on Twitter can just like compete on a take. Something happens and somebody has a take. And then there are like reply guys that get in there that have like a little nuanced thing on that take. And then mm. it's like takes all the way down. Right. And w- we, we can all, we can all like sort of like get into the same little space. Whereas before this never would have happened, mm. you know, and like sort of everybody's like looking at everybody else and dissecting things down to the world. Incredibly unhealthy. Mm. But Twitter has sort of made us models to each other, even models for like the kinds of like opinions that we have on things. Mm-hmm. And there's all kinds of intelligence signaling and things like that. And that's, this is all mimetic, right? I mean, this is all sort of, we're, we're even just the desire to do that is, is a mimetic desire. Mm-hmm. Like there are people, I promise you, that had no desire to become geopolitical pundits until just the last two years when they saw other people doing it and decided, Hey, I I could play that game too. I've got some pretty smart ideas about what might be happening here. Mm -hmm. Just the very idea that we're doing that is, is, is a product of mimetic desire. Right. No, that's so true. Like my wife's a teacher and she teaches fourth and third graders and she's like, yeah, there she's like, like most of what they'll bring up in their free time are like political discussions. (laughs) And it's like, that's terrifying. Well, yeah, and it's it's scary, but it's also just crazy of like, oh, things have just changed to where this is just becoming more and more identity. I think I do want to talk. You brought it up, and I think it's interesting because there the the part of the book that like it like it really grabbed me in the beginning, and then I think it's like this maybe the second or third chapter where we talk where you talk about rivalry, mimetic rivalry, and that one like just made me feel everything. Where I was like, damn, this is me. Hey everyone, we'll be right back with the episode, but really quick, I have to tell you about Riverside, the leading podcast and video platform in the world. And truthfully, we love Riverside and we used it way before we even talked to them about becoming a sponsor for literally every episode of Make Something Cool. We cannot do what we do without it. And the reason we love it so much is it's a lot like Zoom, but I can record much higher quality audio and video on their platform. And what's amazing is it doesn't matter where the guest is located. It sounds like we're sitting in the room together 
while we're recording. It's amazing. And so right after you're done recording, you download separate audio and video tracks from the Riverside platform, and you can easily edit your content from within the online platform if you want. It's so easy. It's seamless. We use it all the time. Josh, my producer, he's in Riverside editing, gathering files, and it makes all of our process so seamless and easy every single week. And we're not the only ones who love Riverside. There are over 70,000 people ranging from individual creators to the big, big podcasts like Guy Raz, Gary V, Spotify, the New York Times. And the reason why so many people are switching to Riverside is because it's really, really good and easy and simple to use. So please go check them out today. You can hit the link in the description of the show notes, or you can just head over to riverside.fm, create an account and get started today. Okay, back to the episode. Well, I want to talk about that, but first I kind of want to talk about like the group mimetic behavior, because I do think it's interesting to think about. I think the last, you know, probably since 2016, it really started, but like over the past two, three-ish years now, it's just gone into like crazy hyper overdrive. Can you talk about like group mimetic behavior? Because it's, I feel like it's almost like, um, you know, now it's like, it's less about uh, at times it's like more mimetic behavior toward like a political party or agenda or things like that. Is that how that works? Or is it still always like individuals who you're trying to mirror who might be a part of these movements? Like how does that work in groups? Yeah, it doesn't need to be an individual. That's, that's the model of desire. You know, mm-hmm. it can definitely be a, a, a group. Um, and in fact, the mimetic phenomenon is, is reinforcing, right? Like, so like we, we reinforce desires, so you can have a, a group like sort of form often mimetically, right? Sort of some idea of like what the group should want, right? Um, you could take a political party or I don't know, a DAO or whatever. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like in a company, there are sort of these like mimetically reinforced desires. Mm-hmm. And sure, it, 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 you know, it starts, it starts small, but becomes a, a, a reinforced idea of what's acceptable to want and what's not. Mm. And it's very scary to be outside of that mimetic system, mm. right? It could be a lonely place. I like to say people would rather be wrong than, than alone, yeah. right? Because being alone is really scary. Right. Um, so yes, I, I, I think that mimesis is what helps groups sort of cohere and people that that, are, that fall outside of one of those groups are the first people to be sort of point pointed at when there's a problem, mm-hmm. right? Because they're, the numbers are not in their favor, right? right. So I think like, um, I think we've seen more of that than ever where it seems like, you know, very quickly there's like new factions that are forming in the country um, and, and all over in the world. And it's like, you're, you're with, you're, you're for us or you're, or you're against us kind of a thing. Right. Um, there doesn't seem to be a, a lot of room for sort of, you know, people like w- working out the, the, the details and, mm-hmm. and sort of arriving at, at some conclusions that might be slightly different. It's like, there's just tremendous pressure. Right. There's no, and, there's no like, uh, there's not a lot of room for gray, gray area. No, you know, pe- people are just uncomfortable with that. Mm. And the, the mimetic theory is, is, is complicated because it, 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 the mimetic desire is just the first step in mimetic theory. Mm. Girard says that mimetic desire naturally leads to conflict and rivalry and even violence when people don't recognize that it's happening mm. because the, 
it's the it's the root of social cohesion, right? Mimetic desire is sort of the glue that sort of keeps people bound to one another mm. in unhealthy or in 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 healthy ways, right? right? You know, mimetic desire can keep people locked into a rivalry, for instance, that they're they're never able to sort of get out of. Right. It can keep people um it can keep a sort of a group sort of like locked into the single-minded desire to defeat the other side or something like that mm -hmm. and anytime somebody sort of threatens that social cohesion they're sing they're singled out or usually when somebody disrupts the social cohesion it can cause a lot of ruptures and and, and breaks and confusion about you know what what we what we should really want here those people are usually singled out as as you know what gerard called scapegoats mm -hmm. and sort of the expulsion of of a scapegoat is the thing that reunites the group a, a, again right? right in some shared desire to to say well that that's not who we are that's not what we believe that's not what we want mm -hmm. um this person wants the wrong things and i think you know we we obviously see that happening i mean i think this is part of what's behind cancel culture like a sort of a, a not very well understood part of what's behind cancel culture is that it's about it, it cancel culture allows groups group cohesion mm, um right you know in a certain way it's sort of like in a sick way it's like it prevents chaos right it's like contained sort of violence right, right? that's yeah. that's that's done mm. um and i think there's something to something to be aware of is like how how mimetic desire sort of and and conflict sort of go hand in hand yeah. on a personal level and on a group level. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, it feels a little off topic, but it, it makes me think of, I don't know if you're familiar with Naval Ravikant. One, one thing he said, uh, he says that maybe he doesn't say it. Maybe, maybe it's him quoting Nassim Taleb, but that, you know, groups thinking consensus while individuals can find truth. Like you can't find tr fully truth in a group because everyone's just searching for consensus all the time to like shared behavior. Whereas an individual, you can you can seek out what you find as truth or whatever outside of a group on your own, but that's really scary to your point. Um, but I I want to mm. get to the rivalry part because that when I read that because you you had mentioned I think you used Jeff Bezos as an example in the book of like when I look at Jeff Bezos I'm not like competing with Jeff Bezos you know I don't look at him and I'm like we're we're on the same level on the same page kind of like what you said about Kanye, but when you look at a fellow in your case maybe an author with a similar following, like number of people who might read or selling, selling the same amount of books. Or for me, I recently experienced this where like, there's, you know, other podcasters doing a similar ish thing to me, similar following count, like all these things. I am much more likely to be bothered by them, even if they're way less materially successful or anything like that than a Jeff Bezos, because simply because like, because we're, uh, in the book, you said rivalry is a function of proximity. Can we talk about that a little bit, like mimetic rivalry? Yeah, it goes back to what we were saying earlier about the you know internal models of desire are the ones that we feel we have more in common with, mm. and that's why they're always more powerful. They're always we're always more attracted to internal models of desire. We just pay a lot more attention to them. And when I say attention, I mean we pay more attention. They, they affect us more at the level of, of our identity. Mm. Right. I mean, I might pay more attention to Kanye and all of the crazy shit that he's you know doing <laughs> right, in the news, right. but he, it, I'm not paying attention because I, because it's, there's like something going on at the level of my identity, sure. internal models of desire do that. And 
you know, the example of Jeff Bezos, like who are most people more jealous of, you could say, right? Jeff Bezos or the person that works in their industry that might make an extra $5,000 a year, right? It's always the second person. Mm -hmm. We just have a lot more in, in common with them. And, you know, in some sense that makes perfect sense, right? Like, I think that uh, James Clear actually talks about this, right? He, he says like, uh, like, it's really good to have models that are just like a, like a one step ahead of you, right? right? One or two steps ahead of you. If they're, if they're way too far ahead of you, they don't really make like a good, a good model or a good mentor, mm. right? But if they're just one or two steps ahead of you, they can sort of help you. They can act as sort of either healthy competition or just here's how you sort of get to the next rung on the ladder. But that's also incredibly, you know, you have to be careful, right? It can be incredibly dangerous because we can just become completely sort of uh, obsessed and like determine our sort of sense of success based on what other people are doing. So I, I, yes, um, the, they, mimetic desire naturally leads to rivalry because we're, we're, our desires are, are in a, in, in a sense sort of we're, we're drafting off of the desires of other people. Mm. Right. So I'm trying to think, um, you know, in the course of, of writing my book, for instance, um, there were thoughts that, uh, there were things that never would have come to my mind that I should have wanted to do, mm -hmm. right? Like give a Ted talk. I, I had no desire to give a Ted talk whatsoever when I started writing my book until somebody basically, I, I saw another author basically <laughs> really want to give a Ted talk. And then I started to second guess myself. I should give one. Maybe I should give one of those. Like, why in the hell does he have a Ted talk? Why can't I give a Ted talk? <laughs> right. Like, maybe that's a good thing for me to do. Um, and it just shows, like, I thought it never really crossed my mind as something that I wanted to do. And it's, there's nothing wrong with giving a Ted talk or wanting to give a Ted talk, but it's just, it was alarming to me how much my desire was completely sort of derivative of this other author's desire. Mm. And then I spent like a few weeks like kicking the tires. And at the time is nobody was giving in-person TED Talks because this was like back in late 2020 and they were all closed down. Um, and I got frustrated for for a couple of weeks. And and basically I, I realized that I don't actually really care that much about that. <laughs> but I was like inflamed for a few weeks with that. Yeah. And like I was constantly paying attention. And this, this guy is actually a friend, so he's not. Um, but I was constantly paying attention to like everything that he was doing. Hey, I got this lead on this TED Talk. And I was like, what the hell? I have nobody's getting back to me. Why are they getting back to you? Right. And like this, this kind of thing can just happen very easily, even with people that are friends, right. like people that are colleagues. Right. And then we can get in this sort of unhealthy tethering, mm. right. Where it's constantly comparing and, you know, it's, it's important, like that it can be healthy when we have somebody that's constantly looking out for our best interest and there's not sort of the zero sum game mentality mm. at work in the relationship right? where if I do this thing, you can't do it or vice versa. Wow. Right. Yeah. And that's, it's important to find people that do what you do that are not in the kind of zero sum relationship with you. Mm. And it can be hard to admit that some people are right. And when you find somebody who's not, they make a, they can make an, an incredibly positive source of mimetic desire. Mm. Right. Like, and, and you can actually help one another, but I think they're, they're not as common as, as sort of the other kind. Yeah. It just makes me think of keeping up with the Joneses. Like that might be the most simplistic way of putting mimetic. Like we have, you know, friends here. I mean, uh, 
they're not close friends. I guess we, I guess they're decent friends, but it's interesting that, you know, we've had them over to our house a few times. We've been to their house a few times and every time we tend to leave, it can always feel like kind of a, a dick measuring contest with like who has more stuff or like they'll make comments about our house and like the, like the, you know, towels we own or the things we, and it's like all these very, um, and for us, I don't know. It's, it's just, it's a weird thing of like very much status seeking. It's like status um, comparison games to where I always leave just feeling kind of icky. I'm just like, I don't like how this feels. I don't like feeling like I'm always in a competition over what kind of fucking towels we have. And like, it's, it's a weird, but it, but it's a, it's a sign of like, it's just like, it's like a, a small symbol of like status and rivalry of like, well, we are doing better than you because we have $300 towels and you have target towels or whatever it is. It's like these weird yeah. little games we play, but that, that can be, that can go to very high extreme levels too. If you're talking about like, well, you know, for me, it's like a podcaster is doing similar things. Like, well, they have, why do they have A, B and C more than me or blah, blah, blah. Like it can, or it can be even bigger than that. Um, just life stuff. But, I find it really yeah. interesting and, and, uh, it can be very small things that mean a lot to somebody, but, uh, but yeah, I think keeping up with the Joneses is kind of the first thing I think of as like a model of this. Yeah. You know, Freud had that phrase that really stands out, the narcissism of small differences, mm. you know, the, the smaller and smaller things that start to matter to us when we're, when there's this kind of internal model rivalry kind of stuff going on. Right. And it might not be that you're, you're caught in that. It might just be because like both parties don't necessarily have to be in sure. the same relationship, yeah. right? Like when both parties are in the same relationship, then it gets really nasty, mm -hmm. right? Like Gerard calls that the double bind, right? You're double, doubly bound to one another. In many cases, just one person is, is in the bind and the other maybe not, might not even know about right. it, right? But when there's the double bind, then the narcissism of small differences really is, is enlarged. Or like the, the tiniest little thing <laughs> yeah. can mean everything, right? Absolutely everything. So uh, Elaine de Bottom wrote, wrote a book called Status Anxiety. It came out like, I don't know, at least 10 years mm. ago now. It's a great book. And he talks about this exact thing. A lot of people don't know that de Bottom is, is definitely as read Rene Girard. And I think he's tried the best when he writes his books, not to get too, too deep into mimetic theory, probably a smart decision on his part as, as an author, right? They're, they're super easy to read, but he's describing, he's describing exactly this, you know? Yeah. Um, and the thing to be careful with as, as humans is that there's always another model out there, right? There's always like our, our hierarchy of, of, values or how we determine success is it isn't it's can in itself be very mimetic right it can change practically daily as different sort of like models of success or models of status mm -hmm. come come in and out of our lives right you can change industries and what constitutes status can change dramatically overnight right right i mean you you, you go into a new company and what meant status in the former company doesn't necessarily indicate status in the new company and you have to reevaluate from scratch. Mm. And I think there's been a lot of that going on in the last couple of years with the great resignation and everything. Like I think it's very destabilizing. Yeah. It's very destabilizing to one's identity. Um, but if you realize that part of what's going on here is that, you know, there's always a new model of desire to, to adopt, mm. which can determine um, the sort of things that we care about and the way that we think about status, 
then you just have a level of awareness that might prevent you from sort of going down the silly path where, you know, you are paying attention to like the, how many, the thread count of another dude's towels or something like <laughs> right, that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's a great point. I find that, and, and you're kind of putting language to it now, but I've started recently the past couple of weeks uh, before our trip, but I've, I've been sleeping with my phone in the living room. So away from the bedroom in my bed, because I was finding I would wake up every morning and just start scrolling Twitter or seeing, uh, checking my email or saying, oh, there's a new Bill Simmons podcast, or there's a new whatever podcast, My First Million, whatever it is. And I would just hit play and just start listening to something right away. And I started realizing like an hour, two hours, three hours into the day, after starting your day that way, I really felt like I lost myself. And I, I, I lost sight of like, what do I think or want? Like, what do I give a shit about? I just get kind of caught in these loops of what other people were thinking or, you know, and it could just be Twitter, social media or Instagram. You start scrolling, you see 10 images in a row on Instagram. That, that turns into like a bunch of parallel tracks of thought in your mind versus, and you don't have a clear slate at all. Now you're thinking about all these other things that were just given to you from, from your feed and you're putting language to it. And I guess I'm realizing like a lot of that's just mimetic behavior. And if I start the day without any input outside of my own mind and myself, and I just get up and I journal and, and I meditate or something, I just feel so much more fulfilled and clear headed. Like I'm, I'm myself, if that makes any sense. Like I feel, I feel a lot more in touch with my true nature. If I'm not constantly getting, you know, socialized is probably the word I, I, I keep using. Cause it's just, you know, literally social people putting stuff in, in my face. And that, that kind of puts language to it. I think a little bit, it's just like, this is mimetic. Uh, yeah. And what, I mean, one way to, to sort of prove that what you're saying is, is true is a little exercise that I've done. And I'm, I'm sort of currently putting together a course, like a, like a 90 day sort of course for people that want to reveal some or understand sort of which of their desires might be more mimetic and which, which ones might be more grounded in something mm. uh, real. And, you know, one of the little exercises that I've done in my life is I, I do build in that, that time every morning, you know, ask myself basic questions, right? Like what's my, uh, there's different layers of desire, right? I mean, like if I ask myself, like, what do I most want right now when I wake up in the morning? Um, I mean, it's honestly coffee mm. usually is the first thing, yeah. right? But then like, what, what after that? Like, what do I most want to accomplish by the end of the day? What do I most desire today, this week, this month, this year, mm. right? Like those are just basic fundamental questions that I can ask. And then if you, if you do that every day where, you know, your first hour of the day, for instance, you, you're not connected to any devices and you, you actually journal, you write these, th the answers to these questions down as honestly as you can. You can look back at this in six months and see a pattern. Right. And you can see when there was like a spike in a certain desire and then it went away and you never wrote about it again. Or you can see when you tend to like sort of, you know, want the same thing for a month. It might be something to pay attention mm. to. If you do that extra, the same exercise for a month while you're unplugged for the first hour of the day or the last hour of the day, but especially the first one. And then you have a week where you do wake up and you roll over and you scroll Twitter and Instagram and listen to podcast and you, but you still continue to do the exercise. You still journal, do the same thing. The, the, the week when you did it, when you're, when you're doing it while you're in the midst of that stuff, I promise you, it'll be very different. Like right? high, I mean, highly more variable, like, just like more, way more, yeah. way more variable. Right. I mean, like some of the stuff that, that you'd cared about every single day prior to that might not even show up. Mm. 
so, uh, you know, th- there are sort of ways to like relatively objectively like get to the root of what, of what's going on and to see the difference that this, that being connected 24 seven kind of makes because it goes back to the, to the compass, right? It's, I, I do believe it's actually impossible to get, uh, a, a, an accurate reading on some of your deeper, what I call thick desires while you're still immersed mm. and you've got to sort of build in ways to create space in the course of your day yeah. for sure. And then, you know, I like to try, I try to do a deeper dive every year where I totally unplug for about a mm. week. Do you find now that you've kind of discovered this and it's become a big part of your life and your thinking, do you ever catch yourself and it, it almost makes you laugh if you're like, Oh, that's me doing the thing. Like, are there ever instances where you're like, Oh, that's me just being exhibiting mimetic behavior. <laughs> like is that all the, all the time. I mean, pra- practically every day. Yeah. And you know, like, the, the funniest thing for me is like now, you know, my wife, Claire, like understands mimetic behavior as well as anybody now. I mean, she's lived with me yeah. for the last three years as I deep dive into this. I feel bad for her. She's heard the word mimetic more than any, any human being <laughs> right. in the world at this point. So, yeah, I mean, she calls it out, too. And, we and, it's, and you know, when you're able to laugh about it, right, it's kind of nice yeah. um, and, and then just diffuse it. So. You know, we, we definitely, uh, she sees it in me. We see it in each other sometimes. And, uh, and I certainly see it in myself. Right. And, and I, I am able to sort of diffuse. Um, what was the last thing that you, you, besides the Ted talk, what was the last instance yeah. of this for you? The, the Ted, yeah. So, um, I was actually supposed to go on my silent retreat next week and I had to cancel it a couple of weeks ago, probably due to like sort of mimetics, mimetic stuff. Um, just, just be, because I, I, you know, saying yes to things for mimetic reasons, right? Like the fear of missing out mm-hmm. or something like that. Or, uh, I think, you know, I see that in myself all the time. And let's see, the, the last one is probably, um, probably just last night where I sort of like, you know, got all sort of fired up about some, uh, I'm not going to say what it was, but it was basically some, uh, some uh, highly sort of like mimetic, mimetic rivalry that I saw on social media that, you know, Claire basically walked me back from the edge of going on a, on a tweet rant about it. Right. And, uh, (laughs) and it, and it was, it was, it, it was only, it was just, it was only due to sort of like my own, my own sort of like being caught up in it. That's, that's the only reason that it probably bothered me so much in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. I, yeah, it's social media is treasures for that. I have one that's embarrassing, but I'll, I'll be vulnerable and share it. I, it, I know it's. I've probably experienced it more since then. But when we have a we have a buddy who's like very stylish, and we saw him before we went out on on our trip, and he had these really cool Ray Ban sunglasses, and I was like, "Whoa, those are really cool. Maybe I should get a pair." I don't. I'm a very frugal guy. I hate spending money on myself, especially on stuff like that. I just it hurts my soul. But when we were in Italy, there was a Ray-Ban store and I, and I walked in and I was, I like got very close to buying a pair of $200 sunglasses that I knew I would break or lose in a week. And I kind and I like had a very sobering moment where I was like, what am I doing? I don't want this. They look cool on my buddy JM. This is going to look stupid on me. They're not even like, it's, it was just this real moment of realization where I'm like, what the hell am I doing? This isn't me. This isn't going to make me happy. I'm just like, 
this is I saw I saw my friend looking cool in sunglasses, so maybe I should get some. When in reality, some ten dollar ones off Amazon will do just fine. Just fine. Yeah, that's a great that's a great example. Yeah, it, Italy's um, Italy's an interesting place to be when it comes to like mimetic desire and fashion. I mean, fashion, you know, being one of the sort of quintessential domains uh, of mimetic desire. Can we talk um, about that? Actually, I love that topic. Sure. Yeah, just go sure. into it because I think. Living in New York, but then also being in Italy, like I do think it is like the statement to make about yourself. It's one thing, you know, you, we can't all control our physical attributes as much. You can control some, but your clothing and what you wear, you're fully in control of. And that's really a signaling, a, a way to signal to others like what what you think. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that, you know, we're talking about models of desire and what do we call, uh, you know, a fashion model or they're, they're models, mm-hmm. right? Um, but we often just think that they're modeling clothes, but what they're actually modeling are, are, are desires mm-hmm. to, to have a certain kind of identity, right? Um, it's never, it's never about the clothes. It's about some kind of, um, like I'll be, people will treat me differently if, you know, if I, if I'm wearing this, right? Mm-hmm. I'll be, um, I'll be taken more seriously <laughs> or I'll be viewed as, as cool. Or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so you know, fa- fashion is. It, I mean, because ultimately, mimetic desire is is comes down to identity, right? And Girard said that like all desire is metaphysical desire, meaning it's never about the thing itself, right? It's always about that some desire for some quality of being that we wish we had. Mm-hmm. And you know, fashion is just fashion. These are just objects, right? And it's like why something. You know, when I look in my closet, I see clothes you know that are a few years old, and they're just embarrassing. Mm-hmm. A lot of them, yeah. right? <laughs> And the things that I thought were cool, you know, when I was in high school, <laughs> you know, fashion, it's just incredibly powerful too. I mean, I lived in Italy. There's this like way of dressing called sprezzatura. You know what I that don't is? Know. Spre- sprezzatura is less way of, um, the like, <laughs> like uh, so, some Italians really have this down where like they, they, they're wearing like really nice clothes and like have like an outfit that's really well put together, but it intentionally looks like they spent zero time putting it together. Right. So, you know, sort of like, it sort of like looks like they just like rolled out of bed and threw on the very first thing that they found. Sure. Yep. But it's, it, it, it's incredibly like well put together totally. and it's really hard to pull off the, that look and also look like you're not trying at the same time. <laughs> right. Like, they spend way I, more time looking like they're not <laughs> trying, like they, they try yeah. way harder than everyone else who just, does, yeah. Yeah. And it, it's, it's like a magic trick because mm. it really does, you know, look like, like they didn't. And, um, I, I went through this period, like when I, when I lived there where like, I thought that I could pull that off and like. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like a dude from Michigan. I mean, yeah. like I have, I mean, I can't even come close to yeah. that. And, um, I remember like going through this period, like if you, I mean, if you saw pictures of, of a, <laughs> I went through like a, a, a six months of living in Italy where I tried to do this a couple of times. And then I just sort of like realized how ridiculous I was actually yeah. being, but it's, it's like, Oh, like this, this guy like looks like he embodies this like lifestyle where, you know, he wakes up and just looks incredibly good and just like spends his day like tr- sipping espresso and talking about like, I don't know, like the next book he's going to write right. or something like that. Or yeah, you know, I mean, and so, so fashion always sort of represents a way of life and an identity and a group. And it's just one of the the most highly mimetic sort of thing, things imaginable. I mean, there's been, you know, multi-million dollar media empires, magazines, publications built around modeling desires for people, right? Like aspirational marketing. Mm. Um, you know, if you buy this 
watch, if you buy, I mean, luxury goods are a whole nother story, right. but you know, if you buy this thing, um, you'll be like inaugurated into this, this sort of like new, new world. And, you know, New York is crazy. I mean, I live in DC now and every time I go back to DC, uh, to New York city, I think New Yorkers is really, I mean, they, they have, especially, you know, if you're spending a lot of time in, in certain parts of the city, it's, like just a single trip to New York can make me think I need to step up my game. <laughs> yeah. I've never, I've never felt so uncool as living here. Cause I'm just like, man, I feel uncool. I was telling Ryan, Ryan Booth, he's this amazing filmmaker, but we were joking when he was on the show. I was just like, I just, you know, we live in the, in the village. So it's a lot of young people. We're like, I'm 30, but I feel like a grandpa in our neighborhood. And yeah, whenever I step out the door, I'm like, I'm just not cool. And I am no longer, I am no longer the cool kid. Uh, and things do not revolve around me at all. Fashion wise. I don't get it. I look at it and I don't get it. I just feel like a, a cranky grandpa at this point. It's, it's funny. Yeah, for sure. For sure. It's, it's really probably, but you have, you have dogs, right? I mean, that's pretty cool. I have one right? dog, but he's, he's, he is, he's, he's, one dog. And he's 170 pounds. So it's kind of like having a few. Was it a Mastiff? He's a St. Bernard. Yeah. Oh, wow. So he's, wow. he's, he's a little, I guess he's our, he's our fashion. We walk around the neighborhood with him. Exactly. We, uh, we have the, yeah. the big, uh, the big stinky <laughs> drooly pup. So that's, that's our fashion statement. But I, you know, I mean, I, I have to say this, that, that some dogs, I, I think, uh, are fashion accessories too. That's a whole nother story. True. <laughs> it does say, it says yeah, a lot. It can yeah, be. Yeah, it really can. It does. It's like cars, right? It's like, you know, why, why people buy certain models of car and, you know, certain. <laughs> are you telling me my dog's a mimetic <laughs> accessory to me, Luke? <laughs> I think you are. Uh, anyway, I have one last thing I want to talk. We've, we've, we've mentioned him a few times, but maybe to close out. Can you just talk a little bit about Rene Girard? Because we've mentioned him a bunch of times in this, um, and I think a lot of people are going to be like, who the heck is this guy? Can we just talk about him for a second, who he is? Like, how did you find, what, is, what did he do? Why is he, why, why, why Rene? Yeah, I, I shouldn't have name dropped him without saying a little, a little bit about him. So Girard is a fascinating uh, character. He, he's a Frenchman. Who came to the U.S. after World War II? He start, he went to Indiana University to get his Ph.D. in history, but he became a polymath, um, an autodidact who studied um, way outside of his domain of expertise, and that's what makes him so fascinating. There's just not a lot of sort of um, these like great interdisciplinary minds in the world today that that can draw off of sociology, history, anthropology theology. Um, he just sort of like put it all together and he, and, and literature, right? He read deeply from literature. Uh, and he made this sort of fundamental discovery of mimetic desire in the late 1950s through reading classic literature, because he realized that all literature, uh, even fiction, maybe even especially fiction is, what you could think of as an archive of self, of, of self knowledge or, or knowledge about human nature. Mm. Uh, I think viewing literature as an archive of self knowledge is, is I credit that to Cynthia Haven who wrote a biography on, on Girard, which is great. It's called the evolution of desire. And it's about how Rene Girard had this discovery of mimetic desire and took him his whole life and, and how it sort of played out in his life. But he, he, his discovery of mimetic desire came through reading classic literature uh, he saw that in some of the greatest works in history, for instance, Shakespeare, 
all of these characters have models of desire, that the best characters have mediators of desire. Mm. Think of Othello, right? Iago is this mediator between Othello and Desdemona. In fact, he's the mediator of like all of the characters in that play. Mm. He's the one pulling all of the strings. He can single-handedly make somebody um, want something, mm. to fall in love, to fall out of love, to get angry. He's the mediator of desire. And in all of Shakespeare's plays, there's a mediator of mm. desire. Same with other great authors. And Gerard saw this in the literature. And But we normally don't think of these people as mediators of desire. I mean, I spent years studying Shakespeare, took him in high school and in college and never heard these characters described in quite that way. So like, first of all, this was like, I mean, x-ray glasses to go back and read Shakespeare, Mm. just like it was to go back and read the Bible because they're mediators of desire all through, all through the scriptures Mm. too. So it like opened up my mind to the, to literature Mm. again. It made literature super exciting because I, I saw this force in literature that I'd never seen before. So Gerard saw it there. And then he noticed that, you know, what is this other than, you know, humans write, write literature and we're embedding secrets of human nature into the writing, whether we mean to be doing it or Mm. not, right? Like whether Shakespeare intentionally did this or not, who knows, but it's true. Mm. And then he began to, that's how his theory started. He began to work this out in other domains. His PhD was in history. So he went, studied history and saw how mimetic desire, how, how models have determined so much of what's happened in history. I tell the story in my book about one character, Eddie Bernays, who, who like used models of desire to basically invent the public relations industry. So Gerard saw mimetic desire mm-hmm. everywhere, right? He saw it in politics. He saw it in history. He saw it, he saw it being actually fundamental building block of human culture, mm-hmm. right? And, and he dialogued with everybody. He was very interdisciplinary, but he was a hedgehog and not a fox, right? The hedgehog knows one big thing. The fox knows many things. Mm. He he wasn't a fox. He, he wasn't the kind of guy that knows like a bunch of different factoids. Mm. He, he, he knew one big thing. And the big thing that he knew was mimetic mm. desire. And because he, he knew this one important truth of human nature, he just spent, I don't know, the last 60 years of his life showing how, how pervasive mimetic desire is in all these different, all kinds of different domains. Mm. And that's why, I mean, Gerard, I think is such a fascinating person because there's just not a lot of minds. I mean, I think he was a genius. Peter Thiel has said that when the history of the 20th century is written around 2100, probably, uh, Gerard will be viewed as a figure as great as like, uh, like a Freud was. And I believe that, um, I, you know, I just think, you know, it's going to take a long time to fully appreciate him, but he, he was such a genius, hmm. but not like the uh, the kind of genius that Einstein was. I mean, he was a he was a genius of human nature, I believe, who was able to synthesize things from all these different areas of study hmm. and and reveal these things that maybe the people that are in those domains of study were too close to see for themselves, right? right? Like no literary theorist ever sort of realized the, the role that that these mediators had in these works, but Gerard did. That says something about, you know, coming into something with fresh mm. eyes, right? You know, I think it, you know, it's, it's very, it's, it's hopeful for anybody that, you know, for instance, may, may not have been in, in the web three world yet. You know, it's not too late because you might come in and see something that everybody else has missed precisely because you're coming in with fresh right. eyes, right? And that was Gerard. So I think he's a fascinating figure to study. I tell a little bit about his life in my book. 
but if you want the full biography, read Evolution of Desire. It's a great, great okay. book. Will do. Will do. Did you did you ever get to meet him? I don't know. I know he passed away, correct? He's passed for a while. Did, yeah, he passed away in 2015. Did, did you did you ever overlap? So, Were you ever able to meet him? I unfortunately I didn't. Um I didn't start even thinking about writing my book until after he'd passed okay. away. But it's been very cool for me because his 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 wife is still alive. She's in her nineties and going strong. And uh Renee Girard's granddaughter came to the to the little book launch party we had on the Lower East Side in New York and I, I met her. Very cool. So I've I've gotten to know the family uh, a, a little bit. And uh, you know, it's I I've 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 heard some pretty some pretty cool stories. I mean, he was um he he sort of lived a lot of sort of what what he what he wrote about and that he 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 was a, a relatively anti-mimetic uh, kind kind of person right in terms of his lifestyle so uh, I wish I could have included more about him in the in the book actually but my publisher would mm. kill me <laughs> gotcha gotcha maybe to close out you said it a couple times now what is we know what mimetic behavior is what does anti-mimetic mean. It doesn't mean being a contrarian. That's um, a really good. Definitely doesn't that's a mean good that, distinction because right? that's turned into its own yeah. version of it. Yeah, yeah. Because you, being a contrarian can just mean you're total like mirrored imitation of whatever you're being contrary right. to. You know, it's kind of like why do all hipsters look the same? Right? They're rejecting the culture and then they they create you their know, own. They just look yeah. the same. They create their own. Yeah. So it doesn't mean that. The way that I try to define it in the book is um, it means having some antibodies to the kind of like negative mimesis that can, that can get people either caught up in unhealthy mimetic rivalries or chasing mimetic desire without knowing Mm -hmm. it. So it's a certain amount of, first of all, self-awareness so that, you know, you're the kind of person that can catch yourself before you go down sort of silly mimetic Mm -hmm. paths, just at least because you're aware of it. Um, And also sort of having the machinery to counteract negative mimetic processes. And that could mean, for instance, uh, and this is incredibly difficult, right? Like, let's say that you're, you work in an organization where there's just a, a ton of like unhealthy, like mimetic behavior. Like people are mimetically adopting bad habits. It's created kind of this toxic culture. Somebody sort of, you know, gets singled out as, as, you know, a problem person and this person needs to be fired where, in fact, like everybody has problems that they need to mm-hmm. deal with, you know, to, to, to be an anti-memetic person in that kind of a situation would be to actually like just speak the truth as you see it to, to sort of stand up and, and be in, in a, a voice that sort of can counteract the, the memetic sort of contagion. Mm-hmm. That's sort of why I like the word antibodies, right? Cause like mimesis sort of acts very much like a social contagion. Mm-hmm. And to be able to, to not be caught up in the contagion and not to just, um, react to it. So in the sense of me, it's not, not to be non-reactionary, mm-hmm. not to react to it, but to just be able to stand in the eye of the hurricane mm-hmm. when these things are coming and to just speak as truthfully as possible or to behave in a way that stands outside of the, of the mimesis and can act as a, as a different kind of model, uh, is sort of fundamentally what I'm, what I'm trying to get at when I say, that, you know, we need more anti-memetic people in the world that at least have a level of self-awareness where they can model a different behavior when everybody else is going mm. crazy. That's so good. Uh, I think that's a great place to wrap up. Luke, thank you so much for for being on. Yeah, I mean, obviously everyone listening, go buy, go buy the book, Wanting. But is there anywhere else where you want people to come find you and, and follow what you're working on? Or do you have a newsletter? You have a lot of stuff going on. 
Yeah. So I, I write a Substack every week and you can find that on my website, lukeburgess.com. Awesome. Yes. And I can vouch for wanting the book. I have it both on Kindle and, uh, and audio and audible and they're both excellent. So everyone go pick that up. Luke, thank you so much again for being on me. It's been a really, really fun conversation and I definitely am going to re-listen and uh, take a lot away from this. So thanks for being here. Thanks so much, Alex. Appreciate it, man. Cool. And thanks for everyone. Uh, thanks to everyone for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, you can get more at alexsug.com. Just sign up for the newsletter there and you'll get new episodes every week sent to your inbox. And as always, you can leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And this episode was edited by Josh Perez. So if you are looking for help with your podcast, Josh is the guy to help. He's a great producer and an even better human being. So please get in touch with him at justjoshperez.com. I'll be back soon with another new episode soon. So until then, let's go make something cool. This episode of Make Something Cool was brought to you by Riverside, the leading podcast and video recording platform. To learn more, check out the link in the show notes or the description of this video or podcast.